Well, thank you so much, Chris and music team for leading us so well this morning and providing us all that uh, special music and opportunities to sing and express what's in our heart to the Lord. Well, this morning I've chosen my favorite resurrection story to preach from. It's Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Here we have the well-known story of the Emmaus Road. And I'm sure like me, for some of you, this is uh, your most beloved um, text when it comes to thinking about contemplating uh, the resurrection. But for those of you that may not be familiar with it, let me read it for us. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. Luke records, and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that, he had also, that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking 
of the bread. Father, thank you for preserving this account for us in your word. Lord, if there was any account in the Bible that I would have loved to eavesdrop on, to be a fly in the wall, it would have been this one. But while we don't have that privilege, Lord, we have your word this morning, and I pray that that would be enough. And, and I pray, Lord, as, as your word is explained, as this account is explained this morning, that, that our hearts would burn within us, even as the hearts of these two disciples burned when Jesus explained the scriptures to them. And Lord, even as the, the light bulb came on in their minds, Lord, that the light bulb would come on in the minds of many here this morning who may have never truly trusted you as their Lord and Savior. And so we pray that you would use our time together in your word to accomplish your purposes for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the road to Emmaus is one of the most moving and endearing accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel writers recorded at least 10 different appearances of Jesus after his resurrection and before his ascension. Mark mentioned that Jesus appeared to two disciples as they were walking along on their way to, to, to the country. You see that in John, or excuse me, uh, Mark 16, verses 12 and 13. But Luke is the only one who provided a detailed account of this particular appearance of the resurrected Christ. And in typical Luke fashion, this is the most thorough, extensive description of all the resurrection accounts, which to me makes it the most fascinating to study. What's more, Luke loved to record episodes about ordinary people and their needs and how those needs were met by the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. In view of that, I want to just read for you a, a creative, insightful paraphrase of this story, which obviously embellishes the thoughts and the emotions that these two disciples were likely experiencing as they walked along the road to Emmaus. But I think it's, it, it's interesting to consider nonetheless. This is from Ken Geyer's little devotional called Intimate Moments with the Savior. This is what he said. It is called Good Friday, but for these two followers of Jesus, nothing about it was good. Everything good that day had died, and it seemed to them it would be Friday for the rest of their lives. For the rest of Jerusalem, though, it was Sunday. The Passover is over, and life was returning to normal, but for these two, nothing could ever be normal again. No Passover could come without memories of him who was led as a lamb to the slaughter. No sacrifice could be made without remembering the way that he was sheared and cut up and stretched out on that God-forsaken cross. Since these two were friends of the man on that cross, a lot of strangers wanted to ask them questions to find out exactly what had happened and exactly what his disciples were going to do now. But these two were so disoriented from grief, they didn't know anything vaguely, let alone exactly. And what they did know, they didn't want to talk about, especially with strangers. And since the city was 
a spilling silo of strangers they wanted out. But where would they go? At that moment, anywhere would do, as, as long as it was away, away from the rubble of lives that had fallen apart, lives that seemed impossible to rebuild, futile even to try. They needed some time to try to sort things out, and they had plenty to sort. They had left everything behind to follow Jesus. They had staked their future on his words, their hopes, their dreams, everything, and now he was gone. And somehow they would have to get along without him. But how? They couldn't understand what went wrong and, and why, but they had to decide where to go next. They could have taken several roads out of town. The, the road north from Jerusalem led to Ephraim, but that was too far. The road east to Jericho, but that was too dangerous. The road south to Bethlehem, but that was too glaring, a reminder of all they were wanting to forget. And so they took the road west, the road to Emmaus. The road to Emmaus is the road that we take when the other roads we've taken turn out to be dead ends. It's the road out of town the road to getting away from it all. You may have walked in here this morning on the road to Emmaus. You feel like life is caved in on you and you're covered by the debris of dashed hopes and broken dreams. Your mind is reeling from the distressing events that just occurred or from some painful circumstances that you might be in even now. You're disoriented. Your heart is aching with grief as you desperately try to see through the smoke and the dust that's floating in the air all around you while you sort through the rubble in an effort to make sense out of this whole mess. And you're perplexed. You don't understand what went wrong. As you grope for answers, all you find is more questions. And you're wondering why the hopes and dreams that you believed would come true didn't. And why the suffering that you've prayed would be relieved hasn't been. And why the questions that you've asked to be answered aren't. And yet regardless of how you feel, you know life must go on. But you're sitting there this morning trying to figure out where to go next. Well, the help you need in the bewildered state that you might be in this morning is found on the very road that you're walking. And your only hope is to have a life-changing encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, just like these two disciples experienced on the road to Emmaus. Well, that sounds all in, well and good, but it's a lot easier said than done because Satan does everything he can to prevent us from coming to truly know Jesus Christ. Most significantly, he blinds our eyes to the truth of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's a problem. 
And in this text, what Luke shows us here are three problems, three problems that prevent us from having a life-changing encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and, and how Jesus overcomes these problems and enables us to come to know him. What are these problems? Well, first of all, there were baffled minds. There were baffled minds. And we see in verses 13 to 24 how Jesus comes alongside these two disciples and how he will come alongside you if you are dealing with that problem of having a baffled mind this morning. Let's look at the text. Verse 13, and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, these were not two of the 11 remaining disciples. Judas had already hung himself, but these were two people who were part of the wider circle of Christ's followers. We know that because in verse 33, it says that they uh, went back um, and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them. So they weren't part of the 11. They went to go be with the 11. Luke recorded that one of these disciples was named Cleopas, verse 18. He says one of them named Cleopas was the one that answered Jesus when he asked them what they were so sad about and what they were talking about. In John's gospel, uh, he recorded that one of the women standing at the foot of the cross with, with Jesus was, uh, or excuse me, at the cross with Jesus' mother right next to Mary was Mary, the wife of Clopas. Some deny that that was the same person that is being referenced here, but I think it's likely that this was the same guy mentioned here, that, that this was Clopas, the husband of Mary. And so if that's so, it's safe to assume that the other person traveling with Cleopas was his wife Mary. And here was a couple who had devoted their entire lives to follow Christ, and yet they were on this roller coaster of emotions. They had probably accompanied Jesus as he uh, entered Jerusalem during the triumphal entry and they were hailing him king along with the rest of the crowd and they watched with enthusiasm as he took that whip and he cleared out the temple and he began talking about the coming kingdom. And the whole time they never expected nor could they have ever even imagined what was going to happen. But a kiss a betrayal from one of Jesus' closest disciples set in motion a mind-boggling turn of events. Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified and they had stood at the foot of the cross unable to believe their eyes. And now it was three days later, Sunday afternoon, Exactly one week after they had entered Jerusalem, filled with excitement at what they had thought was the coronation of their Messiah. And now they were leaving the city without him and without hope. It says they were headed to Emmaus, a small town located about seven miles, seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. And as they traveled that seven-mile stretch of road between Jerusalem and Emmaus, they passed the time talking about all that they had experienced during the previous Passover week. Look at verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. 
And as they were throwing thoughts and impressions back and forth, they began to hear footsteps behind them. And before they knew it, a strange man walked up beside them. Notice verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Can you imagine driving home from a funeral and the guy that had just been buried drives up beside you? That would be pretty freaky, wouldn't it? But notice in verse 16, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. They they didn't recognize Jesus. It could have been because they weren't expecting to to see him or or maybe his resurrected, glorified body looked different in some way. I think it's most likely, however, that God had supernaturally blinded them for a moment. And we're going to talk about why in a second. Verse 17, and he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. Well, Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about. But he he played dumb, if you will, and asked them. And they were so stunned by his question that they came to an immediate stop. And it was obvious that they were depressed about something, but they were even more shocked that there could be anyone in the vicinity of Jerusalem who didn't know why they were so sad. And somewhat sarcastically, they said, well, everyone in Jerusalem is talking about what just happened. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? But Jesus still acted like he he didn't know what they were talking about. Verse 19, and he said to them, well, what things? What are you talking about? And they answered his question by giving a a quick summary of Jesus' life. They said to him, verse 19, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early this morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said, but him they did not see. Someone called this the gospel according to Cleopas. Gives a little gospel presentation there. I think it's obvious by their response that this husband and wife had truly believed that Jesus was their Messiah who had been promised in the Old Testament, and they had expected him to to free the nation of Israel from bondage to Rome and to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, just like the one during the years or the days of King David. And yet all their hopes, all their dreams had been shattered by the cross and then were buried with Jesus in the tomb. 
But then something amazing happened for which there seemed to be no explanation. Some of Jesus' disciples had gone to his tomb early that very morning, and it was empty. The stone had been rolled away, and Jesus' body was gone. And so this poor couple was, was thoroughly baffled by the rumors that were beginning to circulate about Jesus rising from the dead. But I think it's important that we notice here how Jesus didn't just barge into their lives with all the right answers. Sometimes we're good at that, aren't we? As Christians, somebody's in a difficult situation, they're kind of in a baffling uh, life crisis, and we just show up and become, you know, the Bible answer man. Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking, what they were feeling. And he longed to help them make sense of everything. And so he slowly came alongside them and gently probed their pain. And then at the appropriate time, he clearly communicated exactly what they needed to hear. And so the first problem that, that prevents us from having a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ is we have baffled minds. That all that we know about Jesus doesn't make sense. It's all jumbled up in our minds. But there's another problem, and that is biased hearts. Biased hearts. And what Jesus does with this problem is that he corrects us. He corrects us. Notice verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish Men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You might say, well, well why are you saying it's a husband and wife? He said, oh, foolish men. Well, that's really a, a translation a liberty there. The, the translators took some liberty. That wasn't necessarily the, the, the specific word that was used in the Greek there, oh, foolish men. It really was how, how dull are you is really what the original uh, wording says. How, how dull are you? And so he, he gently and, and lovingly rebuked them for failing to understand and accept all the prophecies about the Messiah. Notice he says, was it not necessary, verse 26, for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? They should have known that he had to suffer and die and then rise from the dead. I think the key word here is in verse 25. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. They had read and understood what the prophets had foretold about the glorious reign of the Messiah. They got that part. They were excited about that part. But because of their biased opinion of who he was to be or maybe who they wanted him to be, they either ignored or misinterpreted the promises about the inglorious pain and suffering of the Messiah. Apparently, they never expected the Messiah to suffer, but Jesus revealed to them that it was all part of God's plan for the Messiah to attain glory through suffering. And he basically told them here that, hey, if you had understood the Old Testament, you would have known that the very things that had crushed your hopes that Jesus is the Messiah should have confirmed your hopes that he was indeed the Messiah. 
All that Jesus endured was powerful proof that he was the Messiah that God had promised to send in the Old Testament. But instead of being convinced, they were confused because they didn't know their Bibles. Kent Hughes is one of my favorite commentators. He makes this note in his commentary at this point. He says, what grief they would have been spared if they had only known and believed God's word. And then he applies it to us. He says, if we find ourselves hurting and despairing and do not find that scripture speaks to our condition, it is not because the Bible has failed us, but because we do not know it well enough. And then he said this, we cannot be profoundly comforted by that which we do not know. And that's why it's our goal here at Lakeside Bible Church to help people know what the Bible says. Namely, to help people understand what it means and how it applies to their lives. Listen, the Bible has the answer for every question you'll ever have. It has a solution to every problem that you'll ever have. And that's why our primary commitment as a church is to study the Bible together, not just so we get a bunch of head knowledge, but so we can live it out and be who God wants us to be. Notice what happens next. Verse 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. That's where I would want to have been the fly on the wall, right there. I'm going to, when I get to heaven, I'm going to TiVo that right there. That's the first thing. The first thing I'm going to hit is that right there. I want to hear Jesus, the incarnate word, explaining himself from the inspired word. How cool is that? Notice he used the phrase Moses and the prophets to describe the scripture they had at the time, which was the Old Testament. Look over at verse 44. Jesus later appeared to the disciples who were in the upper room. He said, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There was a, there's a threefold division of the Old Testament. You've got the history section, you've got the poetry section, and you've got the prophecy section. You've got Moses, you've got the prophets, and you've got the Psalms. And so when Luke says here, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, and I would say including the Psalms, I'm sure, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. This was the greatest exposition of the entire Old Testament that has ever been given in the history of mankind. And if they were walking at a moderate pace, I did the math on this, seven miles, 15, 20 minutes to to walk a mile, Jesus had roughly two hours to show them how he was everywhere in the Old Testament. So would you mind if we Go another hour this morning? Just kidding. No, that's not going to be a two-hour sermon, I promise. 
But as he walked along, he, 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 he talked about the sacrificial system and, and the types and the symbols and the psalms and the prophecies. I mean, he just uncovered all this truth from the Old Testament that pointed to him. And he probably started in Genesis and, and explained all the passages that referred to him, like Genesis 3.15, how he was the true seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. Exodus 12 how he was the Passover lamb. Leviticus, how he was a sacrificial system. In Numbers chapter 21, how he was the bronze serpent on that pole that was lifted up in the wilderness that everyone who would look to that snake would be healed. Ruth, he was the kinsman redeemer. In 2 Samuel 7, he was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That there would be a descendant of David who would sit on his throne forever. In Psalm 16 and Psalm 22, he was the suffering Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, he was the one born of a virgin, Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 9, he was the prince of peace, the, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. Isaiah 53, of course, he had to go there, right, where he was the suffering servant. Or in Jeremiah 23, he was the righteous branch. Or in Daniel chapter 7 and 9, that he was the coming son of man. In Micah chapter 5, he was the ruler who was born in the town of Bethlehem. And in Zechariah, he was the king riding on the donkey who was eventually pierced. I mean, what an awesome sermon that must have been to listen to. Again, the incarnate word explaining himself in the inspired word. And as Jesus went book by book and verse by verse through the Old Testament, the sparks began to fly, and the flame that had almost gone out, it had almost gone out in this couple's heart, was rekindled into this blazing inferno. I love what it says in verse 32. They said to one another after he had vanished, were not our hearts, what? Burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. That word explain was used to describe interpreting a foreign language. Sometimes we read the Bible and it sounds like a foreign language, like I'm not sure what that means. This is the word from where we get our word hermeneutics, which is a, a fancy term uh, describing the, the science, the art, the principles of interpretation. How do you interpret the scriptures? And so Jesus simply help them understand the meaning of the Bible so it made sense to them. And I think this is the, the best illustration in the whole New Testament of expository preaching. We talk about expository preaching a lot here at Lakeside Bible Church. What is expository preaching? It is preaching that simply, clearly, and accurately explains what the Bible says, period. And we see how Jesus' ministry of biblical exposition climaxed in his final commission to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Look again, just ahead to verse 45 here. As this chapter closes, it says, Then he opened their minds, here it is, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem.
And so even though these, these two disciples were beginning to understand why Jesus had to die and why his tomb was found empty, it, it, it still didn't dawn on them that, that they were actually talking to Jesus. Again, it says their eyes were prevented from recognizing him, verse 16. Why was that? Well, one commentator suggests this, and I, and I appreciate the thought here. He, he says, quote, that they were divinely kept from recognizing Christ so that they would base their understanding of the resurrection squarely on the scripture and not on experience. And this is good because so much of what people believe today is not based on the Bible, it's based on their experience. And instead of taking God at his word and believing what the Bible says, they, they run around talking about all their, the, the experiences that they've had that are supposed to persuade people to believe that the Bible is true when, when none of them even are mentioned in the Bible. If you look back just a few pages at, at Luke chapter 16 where Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus and these two men died and, and uh, Lazarus went to heaven and the rich man went to hell and the rich man was begging God to send Lazarus to his brothers to tell them the truth so they wouldn't end up in hell alongside him. And at the end in verse 29, Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them. In other words, they have the scriptures. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Listen, if that, that beggar that stood outside my gate, who they all know died, shows up at their house, then they'll surely believe. That experience will make all the difference. And Abraham came back and said, verse 31, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, again, the same way that Jesus described the Old Testament, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Were the religious leaders, the, the Jewish people who had crucified Christ, were they persuaded that he was the Messiah after he rose from the dead? Absolutely not. But these two disciples did solely based on an accurate understanding of God's word. And at the end of the day, why do we believe in the resurrection? It's not because of something we've experienced. It's something that we have read about and studied about, learned about from God's word. And so we believe it by faith. We take it by faith in God's word that God cannot lie. And so if it says it in his word, we believe it. Amen? And so Jesus confronted the biased minds of these two disciples. But there's a third problem here, and we've already been talking about it, and that is not just baffled minds or biased hearts, but blinded eyes. Blinded eyes. That might be your problem here today. 
you have blinded eyes. And what does Jesus do? Jesus convinces us. He convinces us. Notice verse 28. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And so here they were, walking and talking and listening to Jesus expound the Old Testament. And time got away from them, and before they knew it, they had reached their home in Ephraim, or, or in, uh, in Emmaus. And Jesus acted like he was going to keep going, but the couple insisted that he stay with them. And this was an expectation in ancient culture to show a weary traveler hospitality by providing them food and lodging. But this was, this was more than just an ordinary act of hospitality. And the word urge there, it says they urged him, meant they compelled, them by, compelled him by force. They said, no, you're not going anywhere. We, we want some more time with you. I mean, his, pre, his preaching had been so compelling, they wanted to, to spend more time with this mystery man. Verse 30, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. It says, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. It was customary at the beginning of every Jewish meal for the host to take the bread and to offer a prayer of thanks and, and break it and pass it to the other people around the table. And so here was Jesus, who was supposed to be the guest, assumed the role of the host, like a boss, right? Took over. And he took that bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Now, we don't know what for sure tipped this couple off that it was Jesus, but it had something to do with him blessing and, and breaking the bread. It says he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. It may have reminded them of when he had fed the multitudes of loaves and the fishes, and like, hey, that, that looks just like Jesus when he... Fed the 5,000 there, or, or maybe what they had heard about at the Last Supper. These two disciples weren't at the Last Supper. The 11 were. These two weren't, but they probably heard the, the account of what had happened. Or maybe they saw the nail prints in his hands when he handed them the bread. In any case, God opened their eyes to see that it was Jesus, that this intriguing stranger was actually their risen Lord and Savior. And the exact moment they recognize him, he vanishes. And I'm sure you're aware that Jesus' resurrected, glorified body was tangible, you could touch him. He asked Thomas, told Thomas, touch me here. See the, 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 the gash in my side, the hands in, in my, the, the holes in my hands and, and my feet. And, and so you could touch him. His body was capable of ingesting food. Uh, in fact, later on in this very chapter, he just approved to them because they were just in unbelief when he shows up and he walks into the upper room, the locked doors, and he just, he just appears. They, they were... 
astounded. And so just to, to prove that he wasn't just a ghost, he said, hey, anybody got something to eat? And they handed him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it. So his body was tangible, capable of ingesting food, but at the same time, it, it possessed certain mysterious, miraculous properties that made it possible for him to pass through walls and lock doors and to travel great distances in an instant and, and to suddenly vanish into thin air. Well, even though he disappeared, they had seen enough to convince them that he was alive. He was alive. And that recognition had a, had a reviving effect on this couple, both spiritually and physically. I mean, they just got through traveling seven miles by foot. When's the last time you walked seven miles? You'd be pretty tired, I'm sure. I would be. But they forgot about how tired and how sore and how hungry they were, and they immediately jumped up from the table and raced back those seven miles to Jerusalem. The question is, what revived them? Well, they had to tell the rest of the disciples that Jesus was alive. They couldn't keep this incredible news to themselves. And so, verse 33, they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Can you picture this scene here? Here come these Two breathless disciples barging through the doors into the upper room, so excited about the news they had to share. But before they could say anything, the other disciples were saying, hey, guess what? Jesus is alive. He appeared to Peter. Which, by the way, that sealed the deal in the minds of the disciples. Yeah, the women said that they saw him, but they're, you know, emotional women. You never know what's going on there, you know. Can they really be trusted but when Peter came back and said, guess what, guys? I saw Jesus, and he's alive. They're like, that's good enough for us. Can you imagine the joy, the excitement that filled that upper room as Peter and these two disciples, they were sharing their amazing experiences with the, with, with the risen Christ and just comparing notes. And I mean, this was the upper room that had been locked down. The disciples were locked down in fear for their lives. They thought they were the next ones to be crucified. As soon as the, 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 the Romans and even maybe the uh, Jewish authorities uh, heard what had happened, they would come looking for them. And so they were in there scared and hiding. And I think one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection is how this confused, scared bunch of disciples were radically transformed into this band of burning hearts who just burst forth from the upper room to tell the entire world that Jesus had died and rose again so that their sins could be forgiven. So they could be made right with God. I mean, you just look at the book of Acts. I love Acts 17, 6. It says they... These men who have turned the world, what? Upside down. What happened to these scaredy cats? They saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And they wanted to tell everyone. 
And I think the reality of the resurrection should have the same effect in our lives. We should have this irresistible, uncontrollable urge to tell others about Christ. You want to know what the number one application for Christians to the resurrection of Jesus is? It's to go out here today and tell somebody about it. See, it's not enough for us just to come together as Christians and to celebrate the resurrection. Woohoo! Yeah, we're all excited. That's awesome. We should be doing that. But if that's all we do, we miss the whole point of the resurrection. It wasn't just for us, it was also for those who don't know Christ. And so the so so the so the resurrection is not something just to celebrate, it's something to communicate with the world. I mean, it's, it's just too good to keep to ourselves. That's why it's called the good news of salvation. I think the reason this story is so powerful and practical is it's, I think, a, a microcosm of life. These two people on the Emmaus Road are like a lot of people in our world today. They're baffled. They're biased. They're blinded. I guess you could imagine it like this, that they're sitting in front of a, of a jigsaw puzzle, the, the jigsaw puzzle of life, trying to figure out how, how it all fits together, and they're, they're sitting there scratching their head. Nothing makes sense to them. And because of that, they're frustrated, they're confused, they're sad, they have no hope. And what they fail to realize is they're missing the most important piece of the puzzle. That's why it doesn't make any sense. There's a missing piece, and they, where is it? It didn't, it didn't come in the box, right? Well, that missing piece is Jesus Christ. The reason we're here on this earth is to have a relationship with our maker, our creator, God in heaven. The problem is our sin separates us from God and creates this barrier between us and him. And so God sent his son Jesus to live that perfect sinless life that we should have lived but couldn't and to also die that awful painful death that all of us should have died and deserve to die. And then God raised him from the dead. Why? To show that his wrath was satisfied and that he'd accepted Christ's sacrifice on the cross in our place, that he took the penalty for our sin. And now Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's coming again. And in the meantime, he invites all of us to turn from our life of sin and to place our trust in what he did for us in his life and his death on the cross as the only way that we can be made right with God, the only way that we can have our sins forgiven, the only way that we can have the hope of heaven. Almost 300 years ago, a man by the name of John Wesley, some of you have heard that name, 
had a life-changing encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, a lot like these two disciples on the Emmaus Road, and he described his salvation experience in his journal. On May 24, 1738, this is what he said, that he was at a meeting in London that he didn't, he didn't even want to be at, some religious Christian meeting he didn't want to be at. And someone was reading from the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, of all things. Wasn't even reading the Bible, reading a commentary, and, and yet Wesley heard the voice of the living Christ, and he ended up getting saved. And this is what he said, quote, he said, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change, he was talking about the guy who was reading this, while this man was describing the change with God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Were not our hearts burning within us? He said, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins and saved me from sin and death. My question to you is, have you experienced this change in your heart? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Do you have the assurance that your sins are forgiven, that you will be saved from the consequences of death and hell? See, Jesus knows those of you who are walking through life right now baffled and biased and blinded. And he sovereignly brought you here this morning to hear his word explained, to clear up your confusion, and to convince you that he actually is alive and that he can radically change your life. Let's pray. As you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me just ask you, has your heart been burning within you this morning as you've been listening to God's word being explained to you? Do you know that what you've heard is the truth? Do you recognize that you're a sinner who needs someone to save you from sin and its consequences? Let me encourage you to respond right now to what you've heard by receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You say, how do I do that? Well, all you have to do is pray a prayer, something like this. And this is something that is just between you and the Lord and the quietness of your own heart. You could pray something like this. And if if you want to become a Christian today, if you want to commit your life to follow Jesus today, then tell him this, dear God, I know that you created me to honor and obey you, but I've rebelled against you and deserve to die and go to hell because of my sin. I believe that you love me so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I believe that Jesus rose again to prove that your wrath was satisfied. 
and that you accepted his sacrifice as my substitute. Now please forgive me for my sin and help me to turn away from my life of sin. And right now I submit my life to Jesus Christ and from this day forward I commit myself to follow and obey him as my Lord and Master. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be gracious to those who may have come today feeling very much like these two disciples on the Emmaus Road, baffled and blinded, that you would open up their blind eyes to, to see the truth, that you would grant them genuine repentance and faith, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation. No better day to get saved than on Resurrection Sunday. And so, Lord, uh, make us sensitive to those around us. We pray for our friends and family members who may have not been able to join us today, who, who have yet to commit their life to Christ. We pray that you would be gracious and merciful to them and that you would use us to graciously and winsomely proclaim the truth of the gospel to them, maybe even this afternoon or this week or in the weeks and months ahead. But Lord, I pray for all of us that know and love Christ, that, that, that our immediate reaction to what we've heard today, what we've learned today would be to go out of here and to be bold witnesses for the gospel who turn this community upside down, upside down for Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.